Welcome to the Cancer Care Connect workshop. At this time, all participants are in the listen-only mode. During the workshop, you will hear from our panels of expert speakers. We will allow time for questions and comments following the presentation. Instructions will be given at that time. If anyone should require assistance during the workshop, please press star, then zero, on your touchstone telephone. As a reminder, this workshop is being recorded. I would like to introduce your moderator for today's workshop, Dr. Carolyn Messner, Senior Director of Education and Training. Please go ahead. Oh, thank you so much, Sadai. And I, too, would like to welcome everyone to today's Cancer Care Connect Education Workshop, Metastatic Prostate Cancer Treatment Advances. And this is part one of Living with Metastatic Prostate Cancer. Today's program is supported by Bristol-Myers Squibb, a grant from Genentech, and a charitable contribution from Janssen Pharmaceuticals Companies of Johnson & Johnson. And I really want to thank them um, for their support of this program and for many of our other programs as well. Now, um, we have many of you on the call today, um, and we have over, on the call today over 178 participants, so lots of you, 178 from all over the United States, and from both urban, rural, and suburban and frontier communities. And we also have international participants from Australia, Cameroon, Canada, Denmark, Dominican Republic, Egypt, Malaysia, Poland, and the United Kingdom. So this is really a global call as well, and I really want to thank all of you for choosing to spend this next hour with us. Now, before I introduce our first speaker, I would like to ask you just a few questions. It'll take about two minutes. And for those of you who are live streaming the program, you'll be able to see the questions as I read them, and you'll be able to rate your answers to them. And we're doing this really so that we, we're tailoring um, um, we're tailing these programs to best meet your needs. So um, understanding what you know coming into the program will help us to develop these programs as we go forward. So our first question is, on a scale of one to five, with one the highest rating and five the lowest rating, please select your rating. I understand advances and new and emerging treatments for metastatic prostate cancer in the context of COVID-19 and its variants. One is the highest rating and five the lowest rating. And the next question is, I understand the treatment and care of bone metastases in metastatic prostate cancer. One is the highest rating and five the lowest rating. And the next question is, I understand the role of chemotherapy, radiation oncology, targeted treatments, and precision medicine in metastatic prostate cancer. One is the highest rating and five the lowest rating. And now just two more questions. I understand how to prevent and manage treatments, side effects, symptoms, discomfort, and pain in metastatic prostate cancer, one is the highest rating and five the lowest rating. And this is the last question. I understand the role of clinical trials for metastatic prostate cancer, one is the highest rating and five the lowest rating. Again, I want to thank everyone for participating in these questions. Um, you're really helping us um, to best tailor these programs to meet your needs. And now it's my great pleasure introduce our first speaker. And our first speaker is Dr. Susan Sloven. Dr. Sloven is attending physician, genital urinary oncology service, Sydney Kimmel Center for Prostate and Urologic Disease, Memorial Sloan Kettering Cancer Center, professor of medicine, Department of Medicine, Royal College of Cornell University. Dr. Sloven will be addressing an overview of advances, including new and emerging treatments for metastatic prostate cancer in the context of COVID-19 and its variants, 
the role of targeted treatments, precision medicine, and chemotherapy for metastatic prostate cancer, and suggestions to manage treatment side effects, symptoms, discomfort, and pain. And it's really my great pleasure now to turn this program over to my very esteemed colleague, Dr. Slovin. Thank you, Carolyn, and I will do my best to try to give you the highlights of what I think are the most important points uh, for everybody to know. So hello, everyone, and thank you for joining us today. I think you're going to find this to be a very uh, uh, perky, if you will, uh, program because we have some great personalities here, and I think you'll learn a lot. So before I get started, I just want to cut to the chase and, and talk just for a second about COVID-19 and its variants. A lot of our patients are presenting to clinic being very fearful about starting chemotherapy or anything that might interfere with what they perceive is an insult to their immune system. To be perfectly honest with you, 98% of our patients who have cancer, whether it's metastatic or otherwise, will have an intact immune system. It's just that the part that allowed the cancer to grow is somewhat uh, abnormal. But you still could fight the flu. You still could fight an infection. You can do a lot of things. What we have problems with is telling people about trying to get their booster vaccinations. A lot of my Floridians have come down with COVID, largely the variant, because they didn't think that they needed the booster, because after all, they had their two immunizations. And this has been compounded by the fact that some of the local pharmacies, as far as I'm concerned, have gone rogue. They are not waiting for FDA approval. Anybody going in can get an injection, but you know, timing is very crucial. So just uh, a word for the wise here that uh, having a history of COVID or being afraid of COVID is not a reason to get your treatment. There's a benefit risk, which means what could hurt you further. And if it's indeed the prostate cancer, by all means, then one should get started and do uh, the appropriate uh, treatment. The other thing is the FDA has not approved the second booster vaccine or vaccine number four. So as far as I'm concerned, anybody stating that, oh, you can get your vaccine any old place you want at any pharmacy is not within the confines or the recommendations of the CDC or the FDA. So do be do be wary uh, and not try to get uh, uh, to be succumbed, if you will, to just taking the uh, injection willy-nilly. The timing is very critical. That being said, we have so many interesting things that have been going on in prostate in the last several years. The entire prostate landscape has uh, changed really dramatically. We recently now have approval of a new treatment approach, which is uh, lutetium. Uh, this is a lutetium PSMA 617, so this is a radioactive, what we call conjugate, meaning that it's a small molecule that is uh, able to detect PSMA or prostate-specific antigen, which is a molecule that is overexpressed as your cancer becomes more and more resistant to treatment. It's hooked up to this lutetium. And the reason for using this is that when it's administered intravenously, the PSMA is running around the body looking to see if it can detect the cancer cells that express PSMA and bring with it this radioactive compound that this molecule gets internalized into the cell and the radioactive portion of it is broken off and causes damage immediately to the cell. It is a way of introducing radiation with a more targeted approach. 
and uh, the vision trial, as it has been called, was just FDA approved. Now, it is not for everyone. And even if a drug is newly approved, it does not mean that it is the be-all and cure-all of the disease. It may work for some patients or provide suboptimal patients in others, but this is what you discuss with your physician in terms of whether or not this is the right treatment for you or not. The VISION trial, which was published in the New England Journal of Medicine, actually uh, looked at patients who had had prior treatment with docetaxel or taxotere, which is a standard of care for metastatic castration-resistant prostate cancer, and patients who had rising PSA or uh, progressive disease were then treated with this uh, drug conjugate, as we call it. The uh, other part of the trial was just to treat people with just standard of care. And so the question was, was using this type of preparation better than people who just got what we call standard of care, additional hormones, or other chemotherapies? And it did show improvement in what we call progression-free and overall survival, which is just you know statistical outcomes, but we did see people who definitely had benefit. The other thing that's a little more complicating, and of course we, we want people to have a real-world experience uh, based on its availability, is that you do need a PSMA PET scan. So a PET scan is a radioactive scan that looks at different ways of taking advantage of the metabolism of the tumor. Some cancers like to use a different form of sugar. Other cancers might like to use uh, a different um, uh, uh, what we call a tracer, such as uh, amino acids, or it may use, as we just talked about, PSMA. So one of the, there are two eligibilities for getting treated for this new drug. One is that you've had prior chemotherapy with docetaxel, and the second is that you have had what we call a gallium PSMA scan. It's a PET scan, which is a nuclear medicine scan with significant sensitivity and specificity for cells that have on their surface PSMA. Uh, I stress this because in the package insert, uh, there is clarification that in spite of the fact that the FDA just approved a second PSMA-targeted PET imaging drug for men with prostate cancer, the gallium is the preferred imaging modality to be used. So the, this, And it was the first one that was actually approved. But the FDA is now approve what we call Polarify, P-Y-L-A-R-I-F-Y, F-18. This is an imaging drug that also will detect whether or not uh, patients have disease. And it's specifically for patients who, for example, uh, are newly diagnosed where you really can't determine whether or not they have metastatic disease. And it's really those patients who are potentially, potentially curable by surgery or radiation. We're not talking about people with metastatic, but somebody who's going to go to surgery who has a very aggressive cancer, we want to make sure that outside of a bone scan and a CAT scan or an MRI, that there are not other sites. And in fact, PSMA 
Uh, polarified does indicate that. The other indication for this is looking for a prostate recurrence after surgery, for example, the reason being that very often one indication of treatment failure is a PSA that rises to greater than 0.1 after surgery. You might be able to do a conventional bone and CAT scan and say, well, okay, time for some radiation to the prostate bed, the area where the prostate had been, or the pelvis, and maybe some hormones would be needed. But very often, as we've learned now, uh, looking at retrospective studies, there can be patients who fail this kind of approach. And the failure may be due to disease that's outside the pelvis or metastatic that we're unaware of. And this is where using this imaging technique uh, in this patient population uh, has the appropriate sensitivity and specificity to really tell you whether or not there's disease outside. So the lutetium, PSMA, and pilarify really are the two very, very hot areas or treatments that we're looking at. Although Polarify is not a treatment, it's an imaging modality, whereas lutetium is a treatment. The interesting thing now is that there is a desire to use combinatorial approaches to treat the cancer. You know, for a long time, we treated patients with androgen deprivation therapy along with an anti-androgen like bicalutamide. And then that fell out of favor for 10 years. And then the literature showed that combination therapies with uh, androgen deprivation therapy and a hormone pill, such as the androgen receptor signaling inhibitors like uh, enzalutamide or abiraterone, actually were much more beneficial. And so in that vein, uh, there have been now several phase three trials. And again, uh, they're not actually approved as yet, but they are looking at what we call treatment intensification, meaning that we would use our, this is in patients who are newly diagnosed and metastatic, but we would use our standard hormonal therapy and add to it chemotherapy along with either uh, an androgen receptor signaling inhibitor such as uh, abiraterone and darolutamide. So remember, if somebody is newly diagnosed, uh, they've never seen hormonal therapy, the treatment options are extensive, and they range from just a shot, which is the androgen deprivation therapy, to the addition of docetaxel to the androgen deprivation therapy, so chemo, or any of uh, three different androgen receptor signaling inhibitors, such as abiraterone, enzalutamide, or apalutamide. Now, there are data that are showing that in addition to just adding docetaxel to the androgen deprivation therapy, that the addition of darolutamide to non-metastatic uh, castration-resistant prostate care, which is formally where it was actually approved, but bringing it up even sooner may actually uh, benefit the patient. And that's true both of abiraterone in what we call the PEACE trial and uh, with darolutamide. More specifically now is looking at patients who have had genomic profiling. And so every patient who has a family history or has metastatic disease at diagnosis or has very high grade Gleason scores, 8, 9, 10 at diagnosis, these are patients who should undergo genomic profiling looking for specific genes uh, for which now we have new targeted agents. Uh, these are called the PARP inhibitors or phosphoadenosyl ribosyl phosphatase. These are drugs that inhibit the specific enzymes or chemicals within the cancer cell that allows it to repair its DNA 
after it's been broken in pieces by the chemotherapy. And so now we have seen that there are at least uh, two trials that suggest that upfront use of a drug called Olaparib uh, along with uh, a hormonal, uh, I'm sorry, with a chemotherapy um, previously or getting it with uh, abiraterone may in fact uh, provide uh, benefit. So there's so many new things out there now that it's really very, very hard to uh, make recommendations for any one person because it's really going to be up to the toxicity profile, meaning the side effect profile, the concurrent or concomitant medications that may limit you in terms of what you're able to tolerate or you know, just how age is never a deterrent, but how you feel at that age is always a problem. And lastly, in addition to the precision medicine to which I alluded, which uh, of course is looking at these mutational statuses, uh, we have a lot of things now for pain, and Dr. McBride, of course, will address that, but radium-223 has been used. Where there are clinical trials that combine radium-223 along with chemotherapy to try to take care of pain, uh, not only in the bone, but to try to have an anti-tumor effect. Uh, radium itself is approved for symptomatic disease, and the symptomatic disease can be pain from bone disease or it can be fatigue uh, or anemia as a result of marrow infiltration. So I am going to turn this back to Carolyn because I can tell you that Dr. McBride has a wealth of information in dealing with a lot of the issues that patients have that are irrespective of their treatment. So thank you very much. Happy to answer any questions later on. Carolyn, back to you. Oh. Thank you so much, Dr. Slovin. That was really outstanding and just really a wonderful um, presentation for everyone and really set the stage for today's um, discussion and really for people to get information about the treatment of um, and, and new treatments for metastatic prostate cancer and how much it has to be individualized to each of you. So it's really important. Thank you so much. Um, and our next um, speaker is Dr. Sean McBride. And Dr. McBride, is Radiation Oncologist, Memorial Sloan Kettering Cancer Center. And Dr. McBride will be addressing the role of radiation oncology in the treatment of metastatic prostate cancer, updates on the treatment of, and care of bone metastases, including radiation treatment, and the importance of clinical trials as a treatment option. It's really my pleasure to um, turn this program over to my esteemed colleague, Dr. McBride. Thanks, everybody, for having me, and uh, thanks for the kind introduction. Um, so I just wanted to uh, obviously address the role of what's called external beam radiation therapy in the treatment of metastatic prostate cancer. <clears throat> Dr. Slovin has already ably described some of the more exciting advances in the last year with what's called radioligand therapy uh, directed against the uh, PSMA molecule for patients who have progressed after uh, for metastatic patients with metastatic prostate cancer who progressed after chemotherapy. And I wanted to focus more, obviously, on the external beam radiation therapy. Uh, and I wanted to talk about uh, two categories of metastatic prostate cancer. One is what's called de novo metastatic prostate cancer, meaning these are uh, individuals who've been who, at the time of their initial first diagnosis of prostate cancer, have evidence on imaging. And by imaging, I mean the, what we call the more conventional imaging, uh, bone scan, CT scan, MRI. Uh, evidence of metastatic disease. <clears throat> and for men with oligo 
or for with de novo metastatic prostate cancer, there's two categories. There's individuals who have um, multiple areas in the bone, uh, usually more than three with metastatic prostate cancer or metastatic prostate cancer in uh, what are called visceral organs, meaning the liver or lung. Uh, those individuals with newly diagnosed uh, 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 metastatic prostate cancer in multiple areas of the bone or in uh, uh, visceral organs are typically not good candidates for radiation to the prostate. However, there's a category of prostate cancer called oligometastatic prostate cancer. Uh, that's defined as men with bone-only prostate cancer, uh, who uh, where the prostate cancer is limited to Sometimes it, the definitions can vary, but in the clinical trials that have demonstrated the benefits of radiation, it's typically three or fewer areas in the bone with prostate cancer identified on conventional imaging, meaning a bone scan <clears throat> or CT scan. There was a large randomized controlled trial uh, run out of the United Kingdom that looked at uh, uh, the addition of radiation uh, from for men with de novo oligometastatic prostate cancer. This is radiation to the prostate. Radiation to the prostate in this trial was delivered in, multi, in a, in a multi-week regimen, meaning 20 or so treatments over four weeks, or in a more what we call hypofractionated or shorter regimen, uh, otherwise known as SBRT. CyberKnife is a type of hardware that can deliver this. And the other, so the other regimen in the trial was six radiation treatments delivered over, <clears throat> over a few weeks. And in that trial, regardless of the radiation regimen that was used for men with newly diagnosed, limited, or oligometastatic prostate cancer, uh, men with three or fewer uh, bone metastases, they benefited in terms of delayed, delays in progression and extension of life from radiation to the prostate. And so for men with newly diagnosed oligometastatic prostate cancer, uh, a standard of care is uh, to give a, here at Sloan Kettering, we would typically give a short course of radiation, five treatments to the prostate. If uh, men have uh, more significant urinary issues, we would give a more extended course of radiation to the prostate. So that's the role of radiation in, in men with newly diagnosed de novo oligometastatic prostate cancer. Um, one uh, caveat I want to mention is that now that we have, uh, as Dr. Slogan alluded to, PSMA PET scans um, <clears throat> that are being used in men who we think, based on conventional imaging, have, um, uh, have uh, prostate cancer limited to the prostate or prostate nearby lymph nodes. PSMA PET scans are identifying men uh, who may have metastatic disease that's not visible on conventional imaging. And there's a little bit of nuance here. Uh, in men with metastatic disease, especially if it's oligometastatic disease, it's visible only on a PSMA PET scan. Um, I would, uh, that where it's not visible on conventional imaging, I would be leery of necessarily confining uh, uh, that, that disease to the uh, chronic or incurable prostate cancer bucket. For those men, um, because the studies that have studied the studies that have looked at prostate cancer use conventional imaging for men with PSMA PET-only detected metastatic disease. Um, uh, I would recommend that those, those gentlemen be considered for definitive or, or curable radiation treatment or surgical treatment. So that was just a caveat. The, the second category of, of, uh, of, of prostate cancer I want to talk to is what's called 
oligoprogressive prostate cancer. This is metastatic prostate cancer that has developed after primary treatment for what was initially localized disease. So these are men who have a rising PSA after radiation of the prostate or after surgery to remove the prostate. And imaging shows that there are three to five locations of metastatic disease. There are now multiple studies that have demonstrated uh, a potential role for what's called SBRT or SABR. That's a very precise, short course radiation to bone metastases. And by benefit, I mean, again, delays in progression and potentially uh, being able to omit hormone therapy and just start with radiation treatment to bone metastases and reserve hormone therapy uh, once, there is a, uh, once there is progression. So for these men, um, <clears throat> if they have three or four or five or fewer bone metastases, we could uh, treat with radiation three to five treatments to each location of prostate cancer tumor in the bone. Some, typically, we will add in hormone therapy, but a shorter course, um, intermittent hormone therapy as compared to continuous hormone therapy. But in men, especially older men with oligometastatic prostate cancer after initial local treatment, uh, you could consider uh, bone-directed external beam radiation uh, in lieu of hormone therapy. And that can, for many men, delay the need for hormone therapy for a couple of years. Finally, the role for radiation in metastatic prostate cancer uh, <clears throat> is if one of the prostate cancer tumors in a location, either bone or visceral organs, is causing a symptom. Uh, prostate cancer tends to be very, very radiation sensitive, and if a man has a prostate cancer tumor in a bone or a visceral organ that is causing symptoms like pain, uh, difficulty breathing, um, those are situations where targeted radiation, external beam radiation therapy, again, in short courses, typically three to five treatments, can, by killing the tumor, uh, relieve uh, the symptom. Uh, and that's sort of the third role uh, for radiation in men with metastatic prostate cancer. Uh, and I'm obviously happy to take questions uh, at the end. Thank you, everybody. Oh, thank you so much, Dr. McBride. That was really excellent and um, really very informative. And I think there definitely will be questions for you during the Q&A, so thank you. And our next speaker um, is Dr. Elizabeth O'Donnell. And Dr. O'Donnell is Director, Lifestyle Clinic, Massachusetts General Hospital, Associate Director, Mass General Cancer Center Survivorship Program, Assistant Professor of Medicine, Harvard Medical School. And Dr. O'Donnell will be addressing discussion of quality of life concerns, the role of lifestyle, balance, and movement, and guidelines to prepare for telehealth telemedicine appointments, including technology, prepared list of questions, follow-up appointments, and discussion of open notes. It's my pleasure now to turn this program over to my esteemed colleague, Dr. O'Donnell. Thank you, Carolyn, and, and thank you to everybody for tuning in. It is my privilege to be able to talk to you today about these different topics. I'm going to begin with quality of life. Um, this is a personal interest of mine as an oncologist. Um, my primary cancer that I treat is, is called multiple myeloma, and I think one of the challenges that we face as oncologists is addressing quality of life adequately for both our patients and our caregivers. In metastatic prostate cancer in particular, there are effects of the medications and of the disease itself that affect patients' quality of life. One in particular is the use of medications that take away testosterone and how that can change certain elements of your life, whether those be um, your libido, your energy, your muscle tone. These impact not only the way you move through the world, but also how you feel about yourself. 
Um, these are important topics. And, you know, when you're in a doctor's appointment, often our visits are very limited in time and condensed. But, um, you know, prostate cancer in general is an illness where patients live hopefully a very uh, extended period of time. And your physician and their care team want to know how you're doing. Um, there are resources that we have that can help improve both your quality of life and that of your caregiver. And the first step is by having open uh, discussions about that. And so one of the things uh, that I uh, often talk about and, and have a clinic for is really talking about lifestyle. Um, and lifestyle medicine is actually a, a specific um, discipline of medicine that helps people adopt evidence-based lifestyle behaviors um, such as healthy eating, regular exercise, managing stress, forming and maintaining healthy relationships, sleep, and all these help to improve and maintain health, especially as you go through uh, a disease such as, as prostate cancer. How can this help you? And so there are actually good data that show that attention to things uh, that involve lifestyle can improve quality of life, uh, can improve the side effects from your treatment, your physical function, your mood, your energy levels, and maybe even your outcomes. And so uh, a former athlete myself, I love to talk about exercise. Exercise is so important, particularly uh, in prostate cancer when patients are receiving medicines uh, that may impact their testosterone levels. Testosterone is very important for the maintenance of your muscle. Um, and, you know, over the course of cancer treatment for both prostate cancer and many other cancers, you can lose lean muscle mass. And that lean muscle mass is important not only for your physique and for your maintaining the speed of your metabolism, but also just for your ability to get up out of a chair and function. And so sometimes, um, when people are diagnosed with cancer, there's a tendency to stop doing things uh, or to let people do things for you. They want to be helpful. And it's important uh, to maintain your activity levels to the extent that you can, assuming there are not reasons such as bone disease for which your doctor does not want you to engage in activity. The American Cancer Society actually recommends that patients do moderate level exercise three to five days per week for at least 150 minutes if possible. In addition, they recommend doing strength exercises, particularly those targeting the core muscles two days per week. Um, you know, what is moderate intensity? Uh, that's when I say, when I think about it, it's, it's light exercises, there's no notable change in your breathing pattern. Uh, moderate exercise would be that you could talk but not sing, not to the point, though, that you can only get a few uh, words in. And so those exercises can take many different shapes and forms. We live, I live up here in Boston, so many months of the year are inhospitable. Um, there's a lot of content that is free online for those uh, patients who have access to um, computers uh, or apps, um, but, um, you know, really um, trying even just to get out and walk, get your heart rate up, finding low-impact activities like riding a bicycle or a stationary bicycle uh, can be beneficial. And for those people um, who really don't enjoy exercise or cannot, it's also just about avoiding inactivity, staying active, not remaining sedentary. There's so much of a temptation now as we spend so much of our lives on screens um, to, to not get up and move, but do challenge yourself uh, to do so. And I always like to say, even dancing around your house counts as activity and keep doing uh, 
uh, your laundry and your dishwasher and all those other chores. That's what keeps you uh, active and functioning. Eating a nutritious diet is also important. The American Cancer Society recommends a plant-based diet where two-thirds of your diet come from fruits and vegetables. It's important to try to avoid processed foods, uh, white sugars, white flour. Uh, those are simple things that you can do that are better for you and also can keep weight down, uh, particularly if there are changes in your metabolism due to um, having less testosterone. Avoid late-night snacking. Um, avoid fatty foods or, or foods where there's added sugar as well. Um, sleep is so important for our mood um, and also just for our energy levels, trying to have good sleep hygiene, getting in bed at the same time every night, um, trying to sleep seven to nine hours, and also talking to your doctor if there are specific issues um, that are getting in the way of uh, having good sleep, such as pain or issues with urination, are important parts of discussion that you could have with your oncologist that may help you have a better quality of life and feel better as you go through your uh, cancer treatment. Surround yourself with people who bring you up. Um, you know, try and have meaningful relationships. Reach out to people. Share your experience. Look uh, for groups um, where you might be able to see camaraderie uh, and and support as you go through this process. Uh, and this can be during the diagnosis, during the treatment, and even beyond, um, so that you have the support that you need and also so that your caregivers, too, have the support uh, that they need as well. Um, uh, the other uh, topic that I've been asked to talk about, and again, this really comes back to communication, uh, is preparing for your visits. So many people have moved now to telehealth and telemedicine appointments, um, and you know this can be an invaluable way of being able to stay in touch with your oncologist, cuts down the burden of, of driving in and, and parking and coming into the cancer center, um, but you want to make sure that you get the most out of that time. A lot of patient charts are now available online. This is your opportunity uh, before your visit to review any questions you have about any labs that you might have seen or questions from recent imaging. Have those questions prepared so that when you come online with your provider, um, you can address your questions and concerns in that moment in a timely fashion rather than trying to follow it up with an email. Um, you know, we are always happy uh, to answer your questions, address your concerns, um, and, and really work in partnership uh, so that we're speaking the same lesson. I do think having a prepared list of questions is vital. Uh, how many times do we all walk out of a doctor's visit um, and forget to ask our most important question? So write it down. There's time uh, for you, uh, certainly over the course of a visit, to make sure that these questions um, are addressed. And then, um, you know, when you have a telemedicine visit, since you're not checking out in person, uh, it's important just to make sure and clarify how that appointment will be scheduled. I know now for us that we do a lot of virtual scheduling, um, and, you know, I think it's important to close the loop, have an expectation as to uh, when you will be getting that appointment. Sometimes appointments, if they're you know, three, six, or a year off may not be scheduled in real time. And so it's important that both the patient and the care team are responsible for ensuring follow-up, particularly if it's not in person. So I encourage you to be your own advocate. Um, 
there is a lot that goes into taking care of a cancer patient. It's not just the oncologist and the patient, it's an entire team. Um, and at the end of the day, we are our own best advocates. So making sure um, you know, that appointments are in place, that uh, scans are scheduled, and that questions are answered um, really should be seen as you know, part of being on a team uh, with your care providers. And um, you know, as I said, we welcome your questions. You know, we have only the insight uh, that you provide us into how you're doing. So um, know that your doctor, your nurse practitioner, your physician assistant, your nurses um, want to know how you're doing, want to ask, answer your questions, and use those face-to-face -face opportunities for, uh, for those needs. Um, and so, again, it's always a pleasure uh, to present on these calls, and I'd be happy uh, to take any questions at the end as well. Thank you. Oh, thanks so much, Dr. O'Donnell. That was really excellent and a wonderful reminder to everybody about the importance of lifestyle movement balance. Um, and um, I know there'll be questions for you during the Q&A as well. Thank you. And I'm just going to say a few words about cancer care. Um, Cancer Care is a national organization, and we provide a host of services to people throughout the United States. Um, we have a Hope Line number. It's an 800 number um, that people often call. Um, and we have um, about 45 oncology social workers who answer that line when people call. And people often are calling with a specific question. And also, when they talk with one of the oncology social workers, they go over with them the services that they can access from Cancer Care as well, because they're all free, and people can identify if they have other areas of need as well. And they can work out a plan in terms of how best to address all of their concerns. Um, in addition to that, we, have a, we offer practical and financial assistance, as well as co-payment um, assistance. So that means that actually um, you would talk with um, our financial specialists or co-pay staff and they would actually um, be able to identify the services that we could assist you with in terms of financial assistance. And in this day and age, people have tremendous financial concerns, certainly during the pandemic and, and even before that. And these programs are available to really make a significant difference for you, both in terms of transportation for treatment, home care, child care, um, also, um, payment for your treatments as well. So this can be a very important um, component of our help to you. We do also offer online support groups, and those are support groups on, we have them on uh, support groups for older adults, younger adults, middle-aged adults. And we have them on cancer-specific programs on prostate and metastatic prostate cancer support groups. And people like them because they occur um, not in real time, like this program is, but they actually occur you can post any time of the day or night if you like online posting, and then a social worker will moderate that group, and there'll be a discussion back and forth, and people find it very, very helpful. And some people listen, some people post, um, but it's a wonderful way to get um, very uh, helpful information um, in terms of coping. Um, we also offer something called uh, coping circles, which are really um, smaller groups um, which occur in real time in which uh, people discuss many different concerns and questions they may have about just coping with their cancer. And that also is available for caregivers, for um, older adults, younger adults, so it really spans a lot of different um, possibilities, and they're listed on our website as well. Um, in addition, we offer these workshops, and we also offer, um, uh, actually, uh, 
uh, publications. And we also have a case management team that offer um, help to you with questions and concerns you may have, for example, about food insecurity or rent or things like that that you can't manage. Um, our, our case management staff will actually virtually take you to a, either a local, regional, or national organization, and with you, they will determine how to get that help that you need, and we'll stay with you until you get the help you need. So that's that service. So with that being said, before we move on to the Q&A, um, I would like to ask you all just a few questions. Um, um, and uh, so I'm going to move on to, um, and there's again five questions, um, and it should take about two minutes. And for those of you who are live streaming the program, you'll be able to see the questions, and you'll be able to also respond to the questions as well. Um, as a result of what I learned in this workshop, I have greater confidence in my knowledge of advances and new and emerging treatments for metastatic prostate cancer in the context of COVID-19 variants. One is the highest rating and five the lowest rating. And the next question is, as a result of what I learned in this workshop, I have greater confidence in my knowledge of the treatment and care of bone metastases in metastatic prostate cancer. One is the highest rating and five the lowest rating. And the next question is, as a result of what I learned in this workshop, I have greater confidence in my knowledge of the role of chemotherapy, radiation oncology, targeted treatments, and precision medicine in metastatic prostate cancer. One is the highest rating and five the lowest rating. And now just two questions left. As a result of what I learned in this workshop, I have greater confidence in my knowledge of how to work with the healthcare team to use their tips and suggestions to prevent and manage treatment side effects, symptoms, discomfort, and pain in metastatic prostate cancer. And then this is the last question. As a result of what I learned in this workshop, I have greater confidence in my knowledge of the importance of participating in clinical trials as a treatment option for metastatic prostate cancer. One is the highest rating and five the lowest rating. So I just want to thank everyone for participating in these questions. It really will help us as we plan programs in 2022 to get a sense of um, what you knew when you came into the program and what you now know as the program is about to um, um, move on to the Q&A. So, um, and now we're going to, I'm going to ask um, Sadai to bring all of our speakers on board and we're going to try to take as many of your questions as possible. And I'm going to start with the first question. Let me just, um, we have a number of, oh, actually, Sadai, you should probably tell people how to ask questions, even though many people have posted their questions already, if you would like to let people know who don't know how to post their questions. Thank you, Dr. Messner. And ladies and gentlemen, if you would like to ask a question, please press star, then the number one on your touchstone telephone. If your question has been answered and you wish to remove yourself from the queue, you may press the pound key. Those of you on the web may submit questions by clicking Ask a Question. Thank you. Um, Okay, so um, so this is for Dr. Slovin. I'm interested in learning about latest treatments for possible treatment when I become castrate resistant. I'm assuming the question is, what do I do and who, from whom do I learn? Well, let me just tell you that Cancer Care has 
excellent website, as does the Prostate Cancer, uh, Cancer Foundation, or PCF, and they can tell you different stages of prostate cancer. Also, the American Cancer Society. And finally, but certainly not the least, just ask your doctor. I often uh, say to patients, I don't know what, the, what their hurry is in wanting to know about it, because quite frankly, by the time some patients actually do have progressive disease, a whole new slew of treatments that might even be better than the first uh, would be available. So talk to the doc and try those resources. They're really extremely helpful. Excellent. Thank you. Thank you, Dr. Slovin. And we will be sure to give all of you the resources that Dr. Slovin mentioned so that you'll have them. So um, you'll be getting a survey monkey evaluation at the end of the program, probably tomorrow, actually. And um, you'll, we'd like you to fill out the evaluation, but the evaluation will also include all the resources that we mentioned and we'll mention all the organizations that Dr. Slovin mentioned as well. Um, and this question is, um, Dr. McBride, how does salvage radiation um, to the prostate bed differ from radiation to the prostate itself? Yeah, salvage radiation to the prostate bed is typically delivered. So salvage radi radiation to the prostate is delivered in men with newly diagnosed prostate cancer, either localized or oligometastatic. Uh, salvage radiation is basically radiation delivered after prostatectomy when a, after if a man has had a biochemical recurrence of his prostate cancer and where imaging shows no evidence of metastatic disease. Typically, the doses used for salvage radiation, meaning radiation delivered to the prostate bed with biochemical in a, in a person who has biochemical recurrence of their prostate cancer, is usually lower dose radiation. Sounds like you. And question for Dr. Slovin, how many gene mutations have been associated with metastatic prostate cancer? Well, we do know that BRCA1 and 2, which stands for breast cancer 1 and 2, are associated with the development of prostate cancer. Uh, BRCA1 less so, BRCA2 more so, and these are typically patients who may have uh, a mother, a sister, a grandmother who may have had ovarian or or um, breast cancer. Uh, in the bracket two, about 25 to 40 percent of men that we're finding will have these mutations. There are a lot of mutations that are out there. I don't know that all mutations are equal, to be perfectly on, uh, honest with you. Uh, we do know that the there are DNA mismatch repair genes. I mean, there's a whole family, and that is why that when a person uh, comes in, we want to determine whether or not there is any abnormalities within the tumor itself, what we call a somatic mutation, versus a germline mutation, which is something that's passed on to your kids. So we all get these reports. It could be from Foundation One. It can be from Memorial has their own company. Uh, Myriad has theirs. And they will give a list of what the most common genetic abnormalities are and whether or not you have any of them. So we're, we're learning new things every day. There's no one answer that uh, everybody has, but those are the most common, uh, including ones that are called ATM or PALB B2. I mean, there's, there's a whole slew of them. So unless you have any of these, uh, and you, at least you'll be screened for them in any of the more recent assays that are out there. Excellent. Thank you. And for Dr. O'Donnell, so how far to push oneself with physical exercise? 
So that's a really great question. And it really depends on where you are in terms of your prostate cancer. If you do not have any issues uh, with your bones, uh, and, you're, and this is something you should absolutely talk about with your oncologist before embarking on a different exercise regimen than the one you've been currently doing. But if there are any problems with your bones, you would absolutely want to talk about that with your oncologist. If you have any symptoms such as chest pain or shortness of breath with exertion, these are other things that need uh, to be discussed with your oncologist before you take on uh, a strenuous um, activity. However, if you are generally well and, and don't have any other symptoms, you know, really trying to begin, uh, meet yourself where you are. If you're not exercising at all, you don't want to jump right in for five days a week at moderate intensity. You want to build into that. You want to vary the activities you do. Um, and push yourself can mean different things. You know, push yourself can mean get yourself out the door and walk 15 minutes a day, even when you feel tired, which I do encourage people to do because actually one of the few things that's been shown to reduce cancer-related fatigue is exercise. But pushing yourself to lift uh, a higher weight or to go above threshold um, when it's not in line with your cancer treatment uh, is not to be recommended unless it's under the supervision of your oncologist. One of the things that I also recommend to a lot of patients um, is working with physical therapy. Um, so physical therapy for is covered by your insurance uh, for indications such as cancer-related fatigue or deconditioning, and that may be a good way to start an exercise plan, a few supervised sessions guided, uh, guiding you to the right exercises for where you are currently. Well, thank you so much. Um, and a question um, for Dr. Slovin. Um, uh, this patient has had continuous pain in penis and rectum. Doctor has not been able to find reason. What else can he, he do to stop pain? He has had prostate cancer for three years. That's, uh, you'll forgive me. It's, it's very hard for me to come up with an answer without seeing the patient or knowing more of the history. There are patients who have what we call perineal pain. The perineum is the area from the base of the scrotum to the rectum. It's where the woman's vagina would be. And there are patients who have, uh, for reasons that are highly unclear, pain that starts in that area, no other place. There is a plexus of nerves there, and when we hear about these pains, one is always concerned that perhaps this has to do with what we call nerve involvement, very uh, really the nerve in the, in the pelvic plexus, and that is why you're having uh, this discomfort. There are, I would always recommend that people see a, an anesthesia pain doctor. They're wonderful. Believe me, they can, they can anesthetize anything. And sometimes in addition to oral pain medications, which may or may not be what you want, they can do nerve blocks where they're able to reach where the distribution of the nerve begins and ends and treat it with either a steroid injection or uh, a um, non-steroidal anti-inflammatory such as Toradol, but definitely do seek out uh, assistance from the anesthesia pain people. Excellent. Thank you. And that's really an important recommendation to make. And Dr. McBride, do you want to add anything to that in terms of the anesthesia group, the pain, uh, pain service? You know, you know uh, I don't really have anything to add about the anesthesia pain, but I agree with what Dr. Slovin said. You know, in these kind of situations, obviously imaging is important. Uh, radiation can be used to uh, ablate or kill a tumor. 
that imaging shows might be responsible for pain. So that's always a reasonable thing to do. Um, that might be an option in this case. As Dr. Slovin said, not uh, not having more information would be difficult to to uh, make any additional conjectures. Excellent. So I hope this is helpful, and please um, go back to your treating healthcare team with these this information. Um, uh, let's see. Here's a question for Dr. McBride. Prostate removed in 2016. Recently, my PSA was high. I have had three injections of the Gerolex, um, one every 28 days. My PSA went from 168 to 0 0.8. Um, my testosterone is down to 7 NGDL. However, now I have horrible urinary leakage. What can I do? Have been referred to a DO. Um, bone scan was negative to cancer, just DGD, DJD. I am 70 years old, 70 years young. Can you comment on this? This is very specific. Of course, we'd want the person to discuss with their, um, with their, um, with their physician. But yeah, I think you know this kind of situations. It, it, yeah, I think it can be the case that uh, you know I have seen situations where men, when they start hormone therapy there can be some decreased muscle mass and that can include the pelvic floor musculature and that can result in men after prostatectomy having some increased uh, stress urinary incontinence. Uh, you know, I would talk to your urologist, but one of the things that can be done if, you're, if your urologic surgeon thinks that's what's going on is maybe referral for some pelvic floor physical therapy and that can be helpful in addition to the routine Kegel exercises that are oftentimes recommended. Excellent. Thank you. Um... And um, here's a, another question, if you like, for Bride. Um, I think, anyway, for a metastatic prostate cancer patient with three to five bone tumors and also metastatic to lung, the patient has no consistent bone pains. Do you recommend IMRT or SBRT treatments? And if you could explain what those are, treatments. You know, so it's a little bit more, it's a little bit difficult to make a recommendation given the, you know, I'm not, given the absence of additional clinical details, but in general, for men who have uh, what are called visceral metastases, meaning prostate cancer tumor that spread to lung uh, or liver, uh, we typically don't recommend radiation for asymptomatic tumors. If the tumor is, is, is causing some particular symptom, uh, then that would be an indication for radiation. As to which type of radiation, IMRT versus the shorter course SBRT, at our institution, most of the time we treat these with shorter courses of radiation or the SBRT. Okay, thank you. Actually, I want to thank our speakers. They've really been fantastic, so I want to thank you. Um, and I also want to thank our participants for really asking such great questions, really. Um, and... Um, I um, I also want to acknowledge that we could go on for another hour because there are lots more questions in queue, but I think that um, we said this would be an hour program. We've run over slightly, so I just, or we will be running over slightly, so I just want to address the issues of these questions that we haven't yet taken. Um, so for those of you who asked a question, have a question that you wish to ask but didn't get to ask it, or um, who are thinking about a question that you'd like to ask, um, please, um, take your questions back to your treating healthcare team with the information you've learned today and see how that applies to your specific situation. I think a number of times 
our, our speakers have given you some general guidelines, but have always referred you back to treating healthcare team. That's really very important. Um, and I hope what you've learned today is that all your questions are so important. And so you do want to ask these questions and you want to ask them on programs like this, it's true, but then for the specificity of your situation, the specifics of what you need, we want to be sure that you then um, go back to your treating, you know, healthcare team and they then know all the details of your situation, which is so important. Um, and we do hope that you've learned some things today that are valuable to you. We also would not want anyone to leave this program thinking that you're alone in coping with uh, your metastatic prostate cancer or in coping with cancer in general. We want you to now know that you're part of a fairly large community of support. Um, uh, Dr. Slovin gave a number of resources for you, and we will be sending to all of you any resource that was mentioned during the program or any prostate-specific organizations or general organizations that really have very good and, and well I would say, well-reviewed information on their sites. So you want to go to very credible websites. So we will give you the websites that we recommend that you go to for information um, that are checked regularly every couple of months or every month. Sometimes you know, information is updated quite regularly. Um, again, I want to thank you all for your participation today, and I want to wish you all a very fine day. Thank you all. Ladies and gentlemen, thank you for your participation. This concludes the workshop. You may now disconnect. Everyone, have a great day.